when you see something you really like, if you look hard enough, you'll find fault in it. And sometimes you just have to look at something. It's no difference to a picture if you really love it. You know what to look for. You know what the paper says. But if you really, really want to look, I mean, a 10 times loop or a 20 times loop in your hand is not going to give you any more clarity than they use in the, in, the, in the laboratory. Do you know what I mean? So you have to love the certain people analyze rather than love. What's going on, everybody? And welcome to Collector's Gene Radio. This is all about diving into the nuances of collecting and ultimately finding out whether or not our guests have what we like to call the collector's gene. If you have the time, please subscribe and leave a review. It truly helps. Thanks a bunch for listening, and please enjoy today's guest on Collector's Gene Radio. Today, we're chatting with a collector that's owned some of the rarest gems in the world and has created some of the most sought-after jewelry. Glenn Spiro, based in London, is calling in from the Peninsula Hotel in Beverly Hills today, where he has an outpost that he opens for just two weeks out of the year. G has created some of the most magnificent pieces, utilizing the highest of quality and rarest stones in the world, from diamonds to emeralds. He's created pieces for some of the most exclusive, including Beyonce, and has his very own book made by Asseline. Not only is he selling jewelry with some of the most incredible gems in the world, but he's also collecting them too. In fact, he puts stones away for his daughters every year and tells us an incredible story about buying a diamond sight unseen, which you'll have to wait until the end for. He's also in the rare situation where this is a multi-generational business, but G is actually first generation for his family and deserves all the credit. So without further ado, Glenn Spiro for Collector's Gene Radio. Glenn, absolute pleasure to welcome you on to Collector's Gene Radio today. Good morning to you. Thank you for having me. I think we've, we certainly earned our spurs on this one. We tried hard. <laughs> yes, we, we finally made it to the uh, almost the finish line, so I'm, I'm very excited to have you on. Thank you. There's a lot to talk about today, but I think it's important we start with our talk about jewels and stones and, and ultimately your business. Your story is quite fascinating. It's, it's really not the most traditional. At the age of 15, you, you got a job at English Artworks, which was owned by Cartier at the time. And by the age of 21, you opened up your own workshop. How formative were those years working under Cartier and what pieces were they designing at your time there? Well, you know, it's nice to be very real. When I got there, I, I wouldn't say it was uh, they were looking for me. It was more who's going to make the tea, clean the floor and make sure that everything was spick and span. And then after that sort of short period of making a lovely cups of tea for everyone in the workshop, it was a fabulous workshop. They decided to allow me to take a little exercise to see if I can cut the queen's head out of a coin. And if it dropped out, I could be an apprentice, which I became an apprentice for, and I did that for nine years. and became a master jeweler, which was very nice, under their tutelage. And what did that teach me? You know, I think in any business, it's not just about the product. You know, when you come out of school and you get out of your house, you start going in the big world, you meet people, and you collect people as much as you collect things. And um, you learn how to collect the right people, not the wrong people. And people that, you know, give you certain leads in life or people that are slightly better than you in certain areas. And you learn to get the confidence to do that. And, um, you know, what, what I learned in those years was one, to be a jeweler, which is one thing. And it's very nice to do that. That was a, you know, we didn't come from a privileged background, so I needed a career to earn a living and I became a jeweler. 
But more than that, that was just academic. It was um, you look past the jewellery because the, you look at your surroundings and where does the jewellery go? Who wears the jewellery? Who are those people? Who are the, you know, you, it's, a, it's a whole infrastructure to buy a stone, make a piece, and find out who actually wants to wear the piece and can pay for the piece. And that's, um, those informative years taught me how to be around people uh, on my own as a young man. So you, you hunt, source, collect some of the rarest gems in the world. And I truly feel like everything you create is, is like the definition of what the Met Gala is and, and what people do at the Met Gala now and where Art Deco, very avant-garde and, and truly daring at the end of the day. One thing that you're, you're very well known for is, is Beyonce's Papillon ring. How did that come about? So first, in answer your first question, when you say the Met Gala, you know, the Met, there are other jewelers that are far more splendid than I, and they create, you know, wonderful things that just are that wow factor. But in my opinion, I try very hard as well. As I said, when you create these things, there has to be some commercial aspect because unfortunately I have to earn a living from what I create. So it has to have some reality to it where it can be worn and enjoyed without being so crazy. So yeah, we do fine stones and we do collect wonderful things, but they become more wearable and they're, and they're usable. And when you say how Beyonce, it was, I was very lucky because I met Jay through a dinner. We were just sitting together and we became friendly and we've been on trips with about eight guys, all of us together. And we all come from similar backgrounds, all the guys on that trip. And somehow our lives have become good and we've become blessed and we've seen things that we probably never imagined we would see. So we've traveled all over the world together doing things that we would never even dreamt of doing as young men. Uh, and obviously, as a bystander of that, I met Beyonce, which I know very well. She's friendly with my wife and the kids. And I made her that ring. And then she donated it to the museum, which was um, something very special as well for us in London. It's a lovely piece. Um, do you remember the first piece of jewelry that really got you interested into what you do now? Yeah, I actually do. And, um, you know, you can come up with these stories, but it actually is true. I was working uh, at English Artworks and I got a telephone call from a guy that I knew who was getting engaged. I thought, oh, I must have been about 18, I think. I can't remember. We had no money, but he was getting engaged. He wanted to do so. So I found the stone and he bought the stone and he basically bought the stone. And I designed a ring, created a ring. They came in, I gave it to them and money exchanged and a lot of smiles and hugs. And I thought, it's not a terrible business to be in. <laughs> That's very nice. So it's sort of, uh, why not? And then it's progressed from there, really. You know, you make things and you see the joy in people's faces. And, you know, sadly, after a while, it becomes a business, which I'm also very keen on because I don't want it to be something that's not real. It has to feed us. So there is a little bit of a you know there's a business aspect which you know takes away from the 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 uh, you know the, the 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 making of something you have to look at it as a business as well your pieces and your stones are are no doubt very desirable and very collectible and i'm curious to know if your clients who collect your pieces and stones um do they like to collect more of a variety or are they collecting you know for example all rubies from you 
or do you have a mix of those types of clients? So I have to say, I have collected some of the most amazing gems in the world, honestly, and I've, I've only bought them when I can afford them and I keep them and I don't trade them. I own them. And I now start to create people's collections. I never used to serve private clients till 12, 15, 14 years ago. I only made for the big brands. So I collected stones and we built things and eventually we made things and that sold to the big brands. Today it's for private clients and they are building collections and there is great value to that. And um, there's nice things to pass down and nice things to sell. If heaven forbid you need some money and you need to sell your jewelry, it works. Absolutely. And I asked this question to a lot of our guests that are in your position, and that is being someone who deals, sources, collects in the same area of their business. Is there a difficulty sometimes between keeping pieces or stones for yourself versus selling them to a client? Well, I have, I have three daughters and a son, and I save stones every year for them. I cannot, on, on purpose, I haven't documented all the stones because I don't want to remember what's in their little vaults. <laughs> otherwise, I'm going to pillage them and take them out again. So I find it's easier to take them off my memory once I've made the decision for them. Otherwise, if I kept a piece of paper, my natural thing would be selling it. <laughs> so I try not to look. So, you know, I, I love to collect stones. I just, I don't know. I, I see things that I like, and I buy things if I can afford them. And some are, you know, it can be a pound, and it can be a million pounds. It can be many, much more. If I can afford it, I like it. It doesn't matter. I think that's really, I wouldn't say I was the greatest collector, but I certainly have built up a nice collections there of many things, yeah. And what's that struggle like between finding something ultra rare and saying, I want to keep this for my personal collection and I want to make it into a piece of jewelry? It takes so long to make these pieces. And you get so excited to go, right, everything's ready. Let's go out. And people start coming in and they look. And weirdly, get a little bit upset when they agree to buy them. You go, okay, then you hand it over and you're like, your little kid's gone. It's been with you for three or four years and now it's gone. And there is that feeling. You think, well, I'm just going to start all over again. So in a weird way, you do find these wonderful rare gems and stones and make things, and then they disappear and go on their own little journey. Collecting stones and, and jewelry isn't the easiest, right? There, there can be an extremely high barrier to entry, especially not knowing where to find them or not knowing a good dealer. But is there a place that you recommend collectors can get started in collecting stones and jewelry? You know, okay, so firstly, you must never buy something for price. Even when you collect art, you have to look at that thing on your wall, and if you love it, you love it. You paid a bit more and a bit less. If you can afford it, you have to love it, own it, and not reconcile it financially. Once you start pounding on a calculator every two minutes, it loses its it, – it just it has – because the truth is it's worth nothing. Everything is worth nothing. It's only what two people want to pay for it, not three. So that's the real value of something, you know, and just because you've agreed to jump up to that level, there's no reason another one, two people won't go to that level or even higher if you've got good taste. So where do you start to buy? You know, you start to buy at your local little shops. You start to buy at your local little markets. You go and find out the little stone exhibition. You go and buy, and you walk around. You walk around till you look at something and go, that looks really nice. I like the green one, the blue one, the red one, the opal one, this one. And you start to look at things and go, I really like those things. Or it could be jewelry. 
it could be finished jewelry. There's um, there's a man who is was very close to me many years ago, and he retired and he decided to collect watches. He never bought a watch in his life, Cartier watches, from 30s to 70s, and he decided that's I don't know. He bought one little watch in a retail shop, so and he said he put it in the drawer and he loved it. He's never worn a watch in his life. And it's been 20 years, and he's now got one of the largest respected Cartier watch collections in the world. And it was a hot, literally, he wasn't a very rich man. He, I mean, he was wealthy, but not really. But he traded some watches to change here now and learned himself. And it's no different to stock trading, really. It's um, you you got to learn or, or go with you or have great taste. Do you have clients who just want to collect stones and jewels from you without being set in a specific design? No, no, I, I'm just, I want to answer you honestly. Do I? No, I think people buy things from us because they want to own them. The intrinsic value comes second, actually. I haven't got any, look, there is a business out there for sure where, you know, you can see what's happening in the world. People are nervous leaving money here or doing this or doing that. So they have this belief of buying cars or gems or pictures, or whatever it may be, that that's a place to put money. But once they do that, you know they're going to come knocking on your door to sell it one day. And you can only upset them if they don't make more money. It's just, it's an, it's not where I trade. It's not, that's not real collecting. That's store, a storage of wealth, if you know what I mean. Not that that's a bad thing, but not if you're waiting half an hour to sell it. It, 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 it doesn't work. I would have to imagine that a lot of the clients that you have that buy multiple pieces from you ask your opinion on, you know, advising them on how to collect some of the pieces that they're buying from you. Should they diversify? Should they stick with all one stone? Should they go this way, left, right, up, down? How do you advise your clients to collect when it comes to your pieces? Well, I'm also trying to advise myself because you learn every day. <laughs> the truth is, you say I'm advising them. I learn from them as well. I've got amazing friends that become great friends who are exceptional collectors, and it's in their DNA. They lo- they absolutely love it, and it doesn't matter if it's from that period or that period. They collect because they genuinely will put their money across the counter and own that piece. And they buy it with a smile and they can't wait to get home and put it up or use it wherever it may be. So I learned from them as well, remember. So when I'm looking at a client now trying to build a collection, the reality we look at what they've got and, you know, do I give them advice? I would hope they've got the, the – I need to make sure. I don't want to persuade them. Do you understand what I mean? I don't want to persuade them to do it. I need someone also to have the power of the conviction to go – I love what you do and I want to do it. Well, that's then there's the two of us who are making a decision, not just one. It's not just me. Because if it's just me, then I'm, I feel like I'm pressurizing someone to buy something which they don't want, which I don't want to do. Many people mistake you for a jewelry house, but you, you really focus on stones first and then the jewelry that's created no, around no, that. No, jewelry is as, 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 if not more important. But you, you've said in the past that the design of the jewelry, if it doesn't fit with the essence of the stone, you put it back in the safe. So you, you, you do start with a stone, but I'm curious as to how often that happens. So that's 99% we buy stones. We have trays of stones and materials, and then we sit there. But remember, they as much as you love those stones, unless they're super gem and they're sensational, which is a tiny part of it, they don't really come to life 
until you put them into something. It's like making a beautiful rolls of material from the 50s and, you know, making clothes. And if you never put them into a suit or create the thing to wear, use the material, there's nothing to it. There's no beginning, middle or end. You know, it's like writing a song. You have the words, unless you've got the great music, there's no beginning, middle and end. You need the end bit. So we create the end bit and the trays are full of lovely things. And then they naturally find their own buyer. Would you say that you feel the same way about jewels and stones as today as you did when you first started? <laughs> That's interesting. Look, like anything in life, you, you, you get older and you get wiser and you see the world a little bit differently and you see it with different vision of your children growing up and the people you socialize with and where you go. You know, sadly, sadly, my television, my newspaper, my phone, my whatever it is, is filled with the worst news from all over the world. And I made a conscious decision a while ago to actually stop reading the news and listening to the news because it was depressing me. And it's very hard to create lovely things if you keep reading what's really going on in the world. And I can't do anything, I can do my little bit. But if you try and wake up and read that and then go to create or buy things, you, it does it does cloud your judgment, if you know what I mean. It, you know, if you've got any sensibility. Um, so now to your question, of course I've changed. When I was younger, I never used to read the news or see it that way, if you know what I mean. But it does affect you. You look at your kids, what they're growing up in, and the violence and the this and the that, and the way people wear things today. Of course it's changed. You know, it's become much more commercial. You've got huge, huge, enormous fashion brands, you know, now stepping into our world. Um, you know, Louis Vuitton, you've got this one, that one, Chanel. Every one of them are stepping into our world globalizing this jewelry business. I don't see one jeweler making a pair of trousers or shoes. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's amazing. They're all coming into our world, but we don't seem to be going in their world. So I don't know. It's, it's become much more commercial. Um, and what we do is become much more select. A lot of the work that you do is with gradient stones, which has got to be extremely difficult to find, match, and put together. But what is it about collecting gradient stones that inspires you? The truth is, and I'm sure this conversation just between you and I, don't tell anyone, I don't really <laughs> like jewelry. The truth of the matter is 99% of it is absolute nonsense. It doesn't look, it just feels hole in the ear and an area on the neck or something on the, I don't know, it just becomes so commercial to go and spend, you know, X amount of thousands of pounds and every single person in the world's wearing the same thing is a little bit ridiculous, you know? So that's the reality, it's become a commercial business. I don't want to be that. The more, I think I'm in a small group of maybe three or four of us in the world that create lovely things, but it's for a very small audience. Do you understand that you can't build a big business? Uh, you may have a lot of goods, but you can't build a global business on high-end jewelry. It doesn't work. Sure. You also work a lot in titanium, which can be an extremely difficult metal to work with. Do you do this because of its lightweight properties, or is there something else that you love about titanium? Two things. One, a thousand percent because of the weight. You know, I just remember growing up and seeing lots of people at a party having a pair of earrings and halfway through the evening unclipping them and putting them in their bag because they couldn't take the weight on their ears so of course titanium's fabulous for that when you're making a very expensive piece of jewelry 
to be honest, whether you use gold or titanium, it doesn't really, because the value, you're not buying it for the value of metal, of course. And also to create the piece, when you use titanium, once you've mastered it, which we have, although you're still learning again, you, um, it allows you to create things that you, in an intricacy that you just can't do with normal metal. It's impossible. So in all those aspects make a big difference. Sure. And at the very end of the day, you choose not to work with a lot of clients, which is part of the allure to your exclusivity. Do you stay under a certain amount of customers or is there a specific number of pieces that you can produce each year? Just to, to clear up that, it's not that I stay, <laughs> I'll be fussy. I look, I welcome anyone who wants to come in and buy jewelry. I'm not that much of a snob. I'm more than happy. <laughs> you know, don't get me wrong, very nice. But the truth is, Everyone said, how do you know so many people? I don't know what people we know, but we do know a lot of people. I think it's just the nature of the beast. I suppose I like people, so you meet. I think the nature of what we do, there's an illusion, so it's not open to everyone. And people want to come in and see it. And over the years, you know, you know, they say, you know, you, the older you get, the wiser you get. So same in the business. It becomes wiser and more wherewithal on how to run it. The people find what you make and slowly but surely you build a platform that you know with the right people you know select people it's just not for everyone it is somewhat aggravating to sit and show all your work to someone who has no interest to buy it it doesn't work it's not a good, it's not a good hour spent would you say it's become harder or easier to collect stones as technology has evolved and competition has thickened well technology doesn't doesn't make any difference to you i mean when you say tech when you not we'll come back to technology because that's another subject where i think you're going as far as it is, is it harder no it is a bit harder i'll tell you why because there's people now coming into our business as i said they're not sure what they're buying so they're scooping up stuff and hoping that's the right stuff to own um and they're not sure how to use it so you know these big groups are buying some beautiful stones but they're not creating pieces that look good with them unfortunately so, yeah, there are things going missing a bit annoyingly, which normally would be available. Sure. And as far as technology goes, in regards to what I was saying, I was referring to social media and auctions and all these things being readily available at your fingertips now versus maybe back when you started, you had to show up in person or phone in and be able to show that you had a, enough money to, to bid and a lot of times you don't have to do that now. Again, I think when you're dealing with a commercial aspect, the great pieces just don't go in auction. Okay? They just don't. It takes too long to find them, too long to make them. It doesn't work. So the reality is people find what they need. The auctions serve a purpose. I work very closely with them. I've known them very well because I was with Christie's for many years. And I work closely with Sotheby's as well on an advisory role and you know, they sometimes ask us to get very involved. You know, it's a great medium for selling jewelry. But there's nothing more than coming in and feeling it, seeing it, touching it. And, you know, you'll never, you'll never beat that in jewelry, ever. People like to see what they're, you know, what they're buying. And I'm sure a lot of people are going to want me to ask this question. But for someone like yourself who's looking at six-figure, seven-figure, eight-figure stones, what's the best loop that money can buy? Do you know, it's very funny. I actually don't use a loop as often as you think. 
So actually, I do have a new loop. I can't remember the name of it. I bought it in London. But a very wise man, many years ago, I took him from the auction, two beautiful stones. One was a blue and one was a pink. And I was asked to take them to his hotel suite. And I went to the hotel suite, and he was a man of great respect and who's handled many stones. Now, when you go to the auction, you'll see these dealers, they open up their case like James Bond with unbelievable technology to look in the stone, through the stone, out the stone, out the other end. And nine times out of 10, they buy nothing. But they've studied that stone more than you ever imagine. This man, I never will forget, I was young. And he picked up one stone, he looked at it, put it in his hands. He looked at the other stone and he put it in his other hand. And he put one stone down and he looked at the other one in his hand. He went, she's magnificent, isn't she? And I said, she's beautiful. Thank you very much. And he put it back in the bag and he bought it. And that was over 10, 12 million dollars. He never even looped it. He just looked at it. And I asked him once, I said, why do you, why do you not study the same? He said, you know, when you see something you really like, if you look hard enough, you'll find fault in it. And sometimes you just have to look at something. There's no difference to a picture if you really love it. You know what to look for. You know what the paper says. But if you really, really want to look, I mean, a 10 times loop or a 20 times loop in your hand is not going to give you any more clarity than they use in the, in, the, in the laboratory. Do you know what I mean? So you have to love the certain people analyze rather than love. It's good advice. It's very good advice. Honestly, love it. If you look at it, it's no different, you know, as a man looks for a girl or a girl looks for a man. You don't go out and say, I know exactly what I want. You see someone, you're like, yeah, you're there. You give it a chance. But if you want to dig deep enough, you'll find definitely something that will turn you off. But you have to have that first attraction. You also launched a watch, which is something that everyone needs to see. The design is amazing. It is amazing, but I did nothing with it. I've been very lazy with it, actually. I didn't launch it. I made it. I have it. And I did nothing with it. And there's, they're sitting there. I just haven't got my head around it. It is such a nice watch. It's it's gorgeous. Ha- have watches always been something that you've admired? <laughs> not, not really. I mean, I own watches myself. Some old watches. You know, I like them on the wrist. They're you know, it's they're very nice. I like those the the older watch. Um, no, I, I mean, watches are important. I mean, they do finish off a you know an outfit, a thing. It, it just works. I think a woman with a lovely watch or a man, I think, looks great. Unfortunately, we've got problems in the UK, which I'm sure you have elsewhere, where they're, they're very frightened to wear them. Absolutely. Which is just ridiculous. I mean, what a sad world that is. You have a book about you from one of the best, Asseline, called Art of a Jewel. This must have been quite an honor for you. Beyond. And it sold out in like minutes. <laughs> Did sell out, I have to tell you. I never realized how famous I was. <laughs> They sold out. Don't forget, you're a Hollywood movie star. Oh, yeah, quite right. The first one went to my parents, of course. I signed that, and they were all chuffed. And it is nice to look back in your book and think of the journey, and, you know, you document it, and you see your pieces. And actually, you know what? I am proud. It's been a long journey. You know, we come from nothing, and you come. I'm, not a, I'm a first generation, which is not easy in this business, as you well know. It takes a long time. Um and, and we've made our mark in, in our little business. We've made a mark. And um, G is now, I think, 
a respected little house in Europe and, and we're around the world in little ways and we have good followers and we definitely put great effort to buy beautiful things and make beautiful, you know, beautiful things. And to see it documented in that book, yeah, it was a great master. There'll be another book soon. With Asseline? I hope so, yeah. It's a volume two. Why not? I keep going. I'm not dead yet. <laughs> I hope they do a uh, reprint of volume one. I didn't, get a, I didn't even get a chance to get my hands on one. The funny thing, they've just done a reprint just now. They just told me. Well, I'll okay. send you a book. You, I'll give you a book. My pleasure. Just remind me. I will me that. Definitely. Just slip a stone in there, something that's been sitting in the safe for a long time. We'll, we'll see. We'll do something. It's just us on the I'll slip a stone in. <laughs> well, I want to wrap up here with the collector's gene rundown, and you can answer these. I know you collect a lot of different things, and hopefully we'll have you back on to talk about that, but you can answer these questions based on the jewels and stones that you collect, or um, I know you love cars, all that sort of stuff, art. So feel free to answer them however you feel. Okay. All right. What's the one that got away? <laughs> Man, there was. There was a beautiful emerald. Oh, God. And I know exactly where it is, but it's away. It's actually a sad story, but I know where it is and I can't get to it. But I'm praying I will get to it because if I get to it, the person that owns it means they're going to be okay. It's a personal story, but someone owns it and is in a very unfortunate situation, but has the most magnif magnificent emerald I've ever seen in my life. In my life. I hope it finds its way back to you. So do I. So do I. For all the right reasons. Can you share how big it is? 2301. Oh, my goodness. How about the on-deck circle? What's next for you in collecting? You know, actually, pick, I've been collecting... Art, I, I, I've always collected pieces, but art, I, I seem to be going that way now because my son has a great passion for it. And um, it is nice to collect some, you know, I like art, a few cars and things like that. You know, bit, bits and pieces. It's just nice to collect bits and pieces, actually, if you'll know from your travels. I like to collect. So art is, a, is definitely an area I'm, I'm pushing forward to. How about the unobtainable? So one you can't have, maybe it's too expensive in a museum or a private collection. There's a watch, actually. But I won't say what it was, but it's in a private collection. Again, as and when I saw it and I fell in love with it, probably never have it, but they know me, I know them. And if, if it's God's will, then we'll be together and have that watch. It was lovely, lovely. Can you share what it is? It's 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 an old old Rolex, but it's from the fifties. But it's just a one-off. It's just God knows where it came from. It's so cool. <laughs> I love it. Oh, it's so cool. It really is. It's got my name all over it. <laughs> <laughs> How about the page one rewrite? So, if you could collect anything besides any of your current collections, money, no object, what would it be? You know what, cars. And I'm not the reason I tell you cars is not just for the car, actually. Because that would be just, I've been open-minded. There's some really cool cars out there. and um, But more important than that, once you've got the car, if you can, it brings, it's a great family thing to do with rallies and bonding things with people. I've seen now the rallies that they do all over the world. They're amazing. They're am I've never done them, but they look fantastic. Great fun. I, I am an E-type, and a beautiful 1960s E-type. It's immaculate. And that car, did, it's, that car did peaking to Paris. Now, Amazing. 
these are stories. Do you know what I mean? They're great stories. And um, so I think that's a very nice thing to collect. Sure is. I see camaraderie around the collectors. Absolutely. How about the goat? So who do you look up to in the collecting world? I have one great friend who is a true collector. I won't say his name, but he is an amazing collector. As far as if you went in his garden, you'd know every single rose he's got he's growing there. Every piece of furniture, every book, every piece of jewelry, every piece of picture on the wall, every piece of objet. There's a book on every piece. Well read. He loves what he does. It's in his is in his DNA. Loves it. Loves it. Honestly, truly loves it. And he is someone that is truly inspiring to collect. Another one is a guy who lives in Ibiza who collects people, great people. And what they do is they all collect different things. And he's part of all their lives. Amazing. It really is amazing because it's not, it's done with the right spirit. But it's a lovely thing to watch. So they, they inspire me. That, that inspires me if I can follow them. Do you enjoy the hunt or the ownership more? <laughs> well, yeah. are you single or married? <laughs> I'm married. <laughs> well, your answer, so you can answer the question. <laughs> the hunt is to secure it and get it done. <laughs> Most importantly, do you feel that you were born with the collector's gene? Well, I must be because I buy things. I, I, I guess I bought something yesterday. I bought literally a silver dish yesterday. I have no idea why I bought a silver dish yesterday. I walked, I'm in, I'm in LA. I saw it in a secondhand shop. It was a beautiful piece of old silver. It wasn't crazy money, but it was just sitting there. I asked the man the price in the shop. He gave me the price. I said, I'd like to buy it. I didn't ask for a discount. I just bought it. Full retail. Just thought it was beautiful. And I don't know what to do with it. I'll just go in and I might create something with it or hang it. So I don't know. It's just something really pretty. So it must be. I just like to buy things. I like to get excited. I love to know, you know, something's coming and you're going to see it and you're going to put it somewhere. And with the greatest thing is to buy something and go, ha, I found just the spot. (laughs) (laughs) I found just the spot. I usually wrap it up right here, but I would love to hear one more story from you about you acquiring maybe a very rare stone and an interesting story behind it. I'm going to tell you a great story. You ready for this? Have I got two minutes? Let's hear it. I was in the island of Mystique with my wife and kids, with another friend these kids, and there's not good signal there. But a man from New York, a very clever man, a cutter, called me on a very bad line, telling me, from what I understood, that his mother lives outside Rome, and notice that a police auction is coming up in a local little town. Something's been grabbed or taken back to pay some debts. And in there is a diamond of such and such size with a little bit of color. And I said, okay, they're not for me. I'm on holiday in Mystique. I'll speak to you soon and blah, blah, blah. And I put the phone down. And then, shoot, um, I have no idea why he just called me with that. But it's stuck in my head. He told me nothing, but it's in my head. So I ran down to this little area, put my head between two raining bars. There's the only way I could get a signal and called him back. I said, listen, ask your, I'll tell you what I said. I think you should get on a plane and go to Rome. He was in New York. He said, Glenn, I'm really busy. I said, listen, you put this in my head. I think you should go. 
So he flew the next day to Rome. He called me. He went in, and the chain was on the door in the police department. That he can't come in. He can only come in an hour. He sat in a little coffee shop, and he phoned me, and I said, is there anyone else near you? He said, no, no, it looks pretty empty. I said, go in there, see the stone, register, and then leave, and don't go back. He said, why not? I said, because someone, if that's an interesting stone, someone else is going to see it, and they'll see you in there, and you'll make it long. You'll be a bit of a bidding thing, so just disappear and do it by phone. He went and saw the stone, and he sat there, and I said, just talk me through the stone. He talked me through the stone. He went, it's really special, but it's damaged and broken and this. And it was in for no reserve. I said, it's sounding to me. He said, it looks to me like about 800,000, 700,000. And he's a very conservative cutter. And I went, okay. Anyway, the auction came up and he was in a little hotel there. And he's bidding, bidding, bidding. And I said, go, go, go. And at 1.2, he said, okay, I'm out. He said, you're, you're going crazy. He said, you don't even know what you're bidding on. I said, I, my, it's in my head. From what you explain, it's in my head. Anyway, I bought the thing, honestly, for $1.6 million. Blind. He, he thought he was telling me no, and I said, I'm keep going. And I bought the stone. The stone went to New York. I didn't see it. And I said, look, don't show me the stone. I'm going to give you verbally how I want you to cut the stone. Just follow that, because if I see it, it's going to alter the way I'm thinking. So he said, okay. In the meantime, in the meantime, my wife was pregnant with my last daughter, Skyler. And he was doing the cutting. We flew back to London. We finished the stone. It went to the lab, blah, 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 blah. And on the day of the, the my daughter was born, we came downstairs to go in the car. And as he called me, I was holding Skyler and the pillows and whatever else you're doing. That was my fourth child. And he said, oh, my God, look, they want to, we can name the stone. I said, really? He said, yeah, we just got fancy, intense pink, flawless. You can name the stone. I said, let's call it the Skylar Rose because she was in my hand. So the Skylar Rose was named. The stone, right, was all very nice and emotional and blah, 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 great. It was all excited. I bought this fancy orange, fancy orangey pink, excuse me. Anyway, cut a long story. Though, my daughter came home. I went to work one day in about a week, and the, the stone arrived. And as the stone was arrived, came out the box. My, a really good client came in. As the stone was being arrived, oh, my God, I'm in love with that stone. And he was my great friend. And I told him it's called the Skyler Rose after Sky. He goes, and he said, I'd like to buy that for my wife. And he bought the stone for his wife. And I mounted it. She's wearing it. And one day if they sell it, my daughter hopefully will marry a nice man. And the two of them can buy that stone back. <laughs> 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 but that's how it works. And it was amazing. It's called the Sky the Road. You know, you never know. It's all by instinct. It worked out perfectly. Incredible. Gee, thank you so much for coming on to Collector's Gene Radio. You've been a gentleman and it's been a pleasure. And I hope I haven't been too boring. Not at all. I'm, I'm going to take you up on your offer to get that book because I've had a hard time getting my hands on it. No, no for sure. It's my, it will be my pleasure, please. All right, my friend. Be well. Thanks so much and same to you. Thank you very much. God bless you. All right, that does it for this episode. Thank you all for listening to Collector's Gene Radio. <laughs>